Australia have thought it best to send the Night Watchman out. The Welcome to the Night Watchman podcast. I'm John Hotton. Some years ago, when the celebrated novelist Martin Amis presented his father Kingsley with a copy of his latest, Money, the older writer, according to Martin, lasted until a character called Martin Amis turned up in the book, whereupon he hurled it across the room in disgust. That kind of self-referential meta-moment is a risk we're taking today. We've spent this series talking about cricket, but now let's talk about talking about cricket. Long before the game was written about, I think it's safe to say it was talked about. There's something about cricket's ruminative spaces that allows room for language. And in my view, the language through which we understand the game grew as it was spoken about on radio and written about in newspapers and books. It's very hard to divide the two, and they've become even more entwined in the age of social media. The voice was once homogenised, a BBC sort of language that nonetheless offered a framework we could all understand. Now the range of voices are dizzying, from the terrifying banter of the ex-pros lined up in the Channel 7 Big Bash booth, to the rise of the home podcaster. All you need to get your opinion on the air is a microphone and an internet connection. That's a great democratising force. What I hope we can explore today is what, how we talk about the game actually means and what implications it has for how we understand and interpret cricket. Daniel Norcross has been one of the disruptors I'm alluding to. Back in 2009 or so, he was the originator of Test Match Sofa, a fan-led guerrilla commentary crew that operated out of mysterious South London locations. And with its left-field mix of humour, music and genuine erudition, soon had an audience that was looking for something new and different. It was a perhaps unconventional way into the mainstream, but a decade or so on, and Daniel is one of the best-loved voices on TMS and the BBC. Daniel, I wonder if you feel that you moved towards the mainstream or the mainstream moved towards you and others like you? Oh, crumbs. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. You, you, have to, you can't just go on to Test Match Special and do it the same way as you do Test Match Sofa. There are two yeah. totally different products. So, um, you know, the, the, the audience we were talking to often could be the same because people would listen to both. It's the nature of cricket that they can hear two different versions of the same programme and, and actually enjoy them equally. But um, by the very nature of Test Match Sofa, which was supposed to be um, disruptive, slightly alarming, it was pretty bibulous, um, it was, could get sweary at times. It, we didn't have a crowd, so we had to create a totally different sort of wall of noise out of things like music and audience interaction through Twitter and what have you. Um, obviously, if you're going to be on Test Match Special, you can't do it the same way. And and the programme has a, you know, it's been going, Test Match Special has been going for 63 years. And whilst it has changed, I mean, you alluded to the sort of cut glass BBC accents, people like, you know, Rex Olston and... Mm. Howard Marshall before that, um, it has also morphed. It's evolved over time. So, you know, when Brian Johnston came in in 1970, 71, when he moved over from TV, the programme was a lot more straight up and down. You know, you, you think of Arlott's poetry, but that was really the defining difference between it and other cricket broadcasts around the world. Yeah, then Johnston yeah. came in and created this more playful, I suppose, and in engaging noise. So there were elements of what I'd done before with Test Match Sofa that, te- that Test Match Special had been doing for quite a long time, but in a different way. Um, but I guess in the 
in terms of the, how, whether they came towards us as well, there was an element of that because we introduced Twitter into our programme on Tasmat Sofa, largely because we needed to engage an audience in order to get them to engage with us and therefore keep yeah. us going, you know, through things like money and <laughs> sort of slightly important. I mean, but yeah. not a lot of it, but enough to just keep keep happening. But also because that's how you create uh, a sticky audience in modern parlance. Um, right. And also we needed it because we didn't have those other bits of noise I alluded to before. So getting audience interaction created that in a seven and a half hour day, you, you can't just have one note. So you've, you've got to be able to change the notes in in any broadcast, but especially in cricket commentary. Um, and TMS did uh, use that an awful lot more after we did. Um, they they noticeably engaged their audience. They'd always had that before with letters and to a degree with emails. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, suddenly they realised the power of texts and tweets and... You know, I found myself the other day um, doing a commentary, not the same style, but in the, in the same uh, fundamental process as Test Match Sofa because we weren't allowed to go to Sri Lanka. We couldn't get broadcast in yeah, Sri Lanka. Yeah. So we were watching it on the TV, just as I had done with Test Match Sofa because we didn't do it from the grounds with Test Match Sofa. And we were getting a lot of emails to read out from people, you know, because we were in lockdown when we were making this and uh, the, those Sri Lankan test matches and people were very, um, you know, lonely and struggling with life mm. <laughs> right now. In January of 2020, 2021, you know, couldn't really be a worse time really. So um, I found myself reading out these emails being sent them. You don't choose to do it. Producer gives you them. And thinking how similar this was actually in a lot of ways to test match so far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in that I suppose uh, it, what struck me about that, I, I, I remember the, the broadcast you were talking about the other day and the emails, is there's a, a sort of curious kind of intimacy, isn't there, to, to radio and to talking that you really probably only get from a, the relationship with a book or something. It's not like a television broadcast, for example. It's completely different, yeah. It's exactly that. Um, it's actually different again when it's cricket, because if you listen to radio rugby and radio football, although, you know, the, the audience very much engages with a lot of those, there's some really great commentators like John Murray and Alan Parry and what have you before on the radio, because of the nature of the game, it isn't really discursive, it's purely descriptive, because the game goes on at a health scale to pace it. There's very little time really to, to have a lot of variety. You've got to be describing the game, whereas... Cricket broadcast is unlike any other sport broadcast. It's more like a radio show. It's more like, do you know what it's like? It's like through the night radio. Yeah, yeah. Um, where you, you you have to engage with your audience on, a, on multiple levels because the audience, is, what, the audience wants so many diverse things from the game. I mean, they will shout at you if you don't give them the score. They will shout at you if you go too far off topic, some of them. Um, but you have a large amount of the audience that actually listens to it for the characters that are developed, who they sort of see as becoming their friends. So, you know, they've listened to Jonathan Agnew for 30 years. Yeah. So yeah. they know the names of his dogs. They know that he likes flying. They know where he lives. They know about his penchant for barbecues. They know his, <laughs> that he's always going to come up with double entendres given half a chance, yeah. you know. Yeah. They know that Phil Tufnell 
plays a certain part as a bit of a larrikin, but you know that he can go wildly off topic and then straight back in again. Um, they want you to talk about over the course of seven and a half, eight hours, the things that they're going through, especially the test matches from abroad, because you're taking your audience on at like four in the morning, sometimes all the way through to 11.30. So when we're abroad, I remember the first time I did an, well, the second time I did an away series, because I'd done Bangladesh, when I went out to Australia, um, I got the very rare bit of coaching. They don't do an awful lot of coaching, um, as a general rule. You sort of sink or swim in a way and um one of the things that was pointed out to me was don't complain about the heat don't complain that you know about about the food don't complain about anything because you're in australia and it's beautiful and your audience is under a duvet and it's minus two and it isn't going to (laughs) be spring for another three and a half months and they're really struggling with winter so uh you you suddenly get this bond, this connection with your audience because you're really aware of their circumstances in overseas matches, especially. It's a little different again in home matches, um, you know, where, where you get this sort of sense of the nation listening in. So where you might have like the Headingley Test match, that was incredible. That the I wasn't on it, but the amount of audience engagement, it was always like, where where are you now watching this? Oh, we're on a beach surrounded by loads of people. And it's Yeah. Yeah. So it's you're right, it's this it's a different kind of beast in which you radio specifically reaches out to the listener. Well TV, I mean comment TV commentary can be absolutely brilliant, but what they've got is because they have pictures, they use those pictures to give you perhaps a deeper understanding of the mechanics of the the batter bowler struggle in the middle um and then their camera can pan around you know the sri lankan test matches the the producer just loved the view of gaul and he just showed you the the seafront and the fort and heaven knows what else and that's all brilliant eye candy whereas what we have to do on the radio is be that camera so we spend also quite a lot of the time we're on air, having to give verbal descriptions of things that a camera can just do just by, you know, be pointing at it. Mm. So, yeah, see, I mean, this is interesting because to me this is where the, almost the language of the game began to be created by the fact, uh, you know, commentators of, of successive generations had to look around and had to talk. And, uh, and I wonder how you kind of develop that vocabulary and that fluency um i mean do you practice is that a strange question um i don't practice now really well, that's not true i suppose i sort of do but you don't realize that you are um because you watch it um, and and you sort of you sort of think it sometimes in the voice that you're going to use but i, I look a lot of people have listened to cricket commentary from a very early age on the radio because of the very nature of, you know, being made to go on holiday by parents who didn't fully understand that you would be much happier just sat on the sofa for five days and some holidays with the curtains shut watching the game. So um, you would have to drive to North Wales and the radio would be on and then you'd get there and the TV didn't work because in those days there was terrible reception <laughs> in farmhouses in North Wales. And so you could just <laughs> about still... <laughs> get crackly radio, you know. <laughs> You're still um, sounding scarred by that. Day. Oh, it sounds I'm... remarkably specific. I'm furious, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, got, I think I got... Uh, Jeffrey Boycott's 100th 100 
only by climbing up a hill on this farm uh, to get adequate reception on the kind of transistor radio. But I guess... But what, he would have loved the fact that you you put yourself out to that degree to hear it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I told him once and he was... He was yeah, he was, he was no more flattered than normal, you know. <laughs> but uh, no, so, so I guess what I mean is that uh, what happens is that it gets into your system a bit like... Mm. This is going to sound terribly pretentious now, but when if you read oral poetry, Homer especially, it doesn't take you very long to realise that, um, you know, somebody hasn't sat down and written this. It's been transliterated later because you've got these rhythmic utterances, you know, the oars plied the briny sea, this kind of thing, you know, or rosy-fingered dawn. <laughs> etc and actually in, in cricket we have the same thing we have you know yeah. here's broad tall blonde top of his mark running away from me right arm over the wicket to the left-handed warner and uh hey presto he's got him again uh, <laughs> in the case of warner but you know uh when it would come round the wicket wouldn't need to warner but you know what i mean so it'd be and, and the other part of it is very similar to oral poetry you know you, you have a rhythm in your head which yeah. develops and yeah. you'll go Two slips, gully, point, extra, mid-off, mid-wicket, mid-on, and a long leg. And it has this rhythm and it has this cadence. And every commentator does it, actually, um, you know, because it actually, it sort of, it sets your your tone. And it doesn't sound overly pretentious, but there is a kind of spoken poetry to cricket commentary, the rhythm of the ball, the rhythm of the bowler, um, the shot, and then you reset again, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's very true. But I, I wonder how that, how much that creates a kind of orthodoxy that you then want to put your own imprint on. And certainly for other, you know, other people coming into the game, younger, younger people and other older player, you know, old players who are retiring and all of the people who are now in the commentary box who maybe don't have that in their background. Yeah, well, I think there are some things that are just... That are, that are the scaffolding, I guess, of commentary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is one of them. You know, we all have to, as, as radio commentators, try to take control of the ball when the bowler's at the top of their mark. I mean, sometimes your summariser doesn't let you because they continue <laughs> to talk yeah. and then they... Uh, I mean, they've all done it. You know, Vic, Vic does it, Jeffrey does it. Toughest does it, you know, and they, they'll let go just as the bowler's about to bowl. <laughs> but in, yeah. in an ideal world, you know, you every commentator wants to have that build up. They ought to be able, to, they ought to tell their audience the field at least once and over. Because, you know, I started commentating for for people uh, for a blind man at the Oval when I was eighteen, and it's something that I've never forgotten. Um, was that. Uh, we were sat in the pavilion, quite close to the front, and he would say, "Can you can you commentate for me?" And I go, "Yeah." So you know, it's Sylvester Clark, and that's been cut away down to third man. And he'd say, "I know it's gone to third man. Is there a third man?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was right, amazing because yeah. because he could yeah. he could hear from the sound of the ball off the bat where the ball had gone, but what wow. he didn't know and couldn't know was where the field had been placed. And so I, I thought about that a lot. And when I came to do commentary, you know, for a living, I thought, you know, always remember the blind man or woman 
doesn't know the shape of the field, so you want to set that. So they've got that imprint in their mind, and they know, therefore, if you say he's hit it through the covers, and if, you, if you've already said there's a sweeper on the cover boundary, 10 yards front of the square, then they can imagine that guy running around, you know. Um, if it flies through the slips, they want you. it's good for them to know how many slips. So anyway, the point, point being that you you need to do those building blocks and you need to keep the score updated. These are just facts. Now, around that, you then build your own style. And for me, the style, um, there's a couple of things that I've thought about a lot, which is when to use the passive and the active voice, for example. So you think a lot about the state of the game and you think, is the bowler on top, is the batsman on top? So right. am I looking at, should I be looking at this ball from the point of view of the batsman, batter, or from the point of view of the bowler? So when the bowler's taken a couple of wickets and they're on a roll, then it's what the bowler is doing, you know. When the batter's on top, it's what the batsman's often done to the ball. The ball has been smashed through the offside by so-and-so, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how you use that to create a different sense of the game and where the game is at is uh, it's it's slightly conscious it's often unconscious like tony cozy was the very best at this he seemed to have an unconscious ability to describe the game through the tone of his voice and the active and passive voices that he used right yeah and he would if you turned on a bit of tony cozier and you would just make a cup of tea you'd be able to tell is this game in a tense stage with the bowlers on top? <laughs> yeah. Or is it or is are we in the middle of a long partnership between Greenwich and Richards and his voice is in a different place, you know, it's it's here. And yeah. and you do do that slightly you do do that sometimes consciously when you start a stint, because don't forget we get this great privilege of of being on for twenty minutes at a time and then stepping back. So before you then go back on to do your next 20 minutes, just before you go on, I, I assess the game and where we're at. And is this, for example, are we in a stage now where I can talk to Phil Tufnell about zombies? Or is this a stage <laughs> where, where I've absolutely yeah. got to talk about what Yazir Shah is trying to do to get out yeah. Zach Crawley, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Players always speak about being in the zone, you know, this kind of hallowed and, and ephemeral state where everything just comes naturally. You're not even thinking, you're just doing. Uh, and I wonder if commentators do the same, especially when it comes to that moment that you might only get once in a career, you know, uh, Arlott speaking about Bradman's last innings or Ian Smith grabbing hold of the, the barest of margins, you know. I wonder how conscious those things can be and whether you even worry about those. You worry. I mean, I worried hugely. I had one myself, which was a really big moment. It was uh, Alistair Cook's last Test match, and yeah, I was yeah. doing it. The commentary roster for Ball by Ball that day was Simon Mann, Jonathan Agnew, and me. And so we rotate, you know, twenty minutes an hour. And as Cook started the day, it was on about sixty odd. And the crowd had really, really built up, and it had been an insane atmosphere the whole match. Because every time yeah. he came oh, out, because that, that was when you, yeah, it was you could just buy a ticket on the day, couldn't you? For that, that's one, right, I think. yeah, yeah. And yeah. They, they, I think they had six thousand sold the night before, and then something like 
eighteen thousand sold <laughs> yeah. that day. Yeah, because it was it was going to be his last innings, and there had been this real outpouring actually of, of sort of gratitude for Alistair Cook from the, from the yeah. audience. It's a really strange feeling, and um, you became aware that uh, basically each of us passed over uh, to each other the, the commentators passed over this imaginary gun because it was like Russian roulette. <laughs> Because you did not want to be on air when he was out, right? Before he got a hundred, you know. Right. Yeah. If, you, if you had to go, you know, oh no, and there goes Alice Cook for eighty-six, and that's the end of this yeah. in, incredible career and all that. You've sort of thought about that. Well, more than sort of, you've kind of had some ideas in your mind about how you wanted to frame him, but you can't, as a commentator, plan what you're going to say. If you do, it, it sounds pretty terrible i mean I, yeah it sounds planned, i love john yeah. watson i really do but you know when he said <laughs> in the 1977 fa cup final how appropriate that a man called bucken should climb the 39 steps to collect the <laughs> fa cup you know yeah, it was like yeah, i wrote terrible. this three yeah. weeks ago in case majesty united won yeah. you know and so <laughs> you you desperately don't want to fall into that trap and the circumstances are always unique so you've got to try to describe the circumstances as you see them and feel them anyways it went round i came on and he was on 95 i think it was or 96 and my producer said to me like he didn't actually need to but he said just cook just cook you know in other words (laughs) no zombies you know um yeah. <laughs> so um, I got on and I felt a terrible nervousness because Simon Mann handed me over the imaginary gun for Russian roulette because if I got him out now, I mean, that just would have been oh, devastating. Yeah. And he hit the ball yeah. to backward point and set off for a run. And I was just watching him because I just wanted to make sure I, I, I followed him every way that he was going to be in. And I did, and he got that single. But this throw came in that was so wild, I completely <laughs> missed it. And it was only Ebony Rainford Brent tugging at my arm and pointing, because the ball was running away for four overthrows, that alerted yeah. me to the fact that he'd, he'd just got to his 100. Now, you see, that's why you don't prepare, because then you've got the extraordinary nature of how he's got out. <laughs> and then in your head, you think, my God, he did that at the Oval in 2010 when his career was in real difficulty. Yeah, on the line, And yeah, um, yeah. Zulkanein Haider couldn't, couldn't collect the ball. I think it was from Mohamed Asif who threw it back really hard and it, and it got him his 100 mm. with overthrows at the Oval. And he got 60 and 100 against India in his first, 60 and 100 in his last. And, and all those things, they come flooding over you. Um, right. But the thing that's, I think, so important, and Arlott, of course, did it, you might say did it, it's a bit of overkill, actually, with the Bradman line. Because everyone hears the Bradman commentary and thinks that's brilliant. What they don't hear is that he was silent for 45 seconds. I did a yes, documentary yeah. on it with Adam Collins, and, and so I actually listened to all of it. And you couldn't do that now. I mean, your producer would be screaming in your ears if you were that silent for 45 seconds. But at the same time, mm. you can't just talk over the atmosphere of the crowd because the crowd has to be part of... The moment when, especially when you know, when a crowd is that fervid as it was, and it was the mm. longest ovation I'd ever heard, and it just kept going for like two minutes, and so you would pause and you'd let that come in, and then you'd have to comment on that, and then you'd comment on Cook, and then you'd. And I remember him patting the 
the, the, the wicket down and trying to get the crowd to stop clapping because <laughs> they wouldn't do it, you know. And so you have to describe that as well. So as a long-winded answer to your question, but um, you, can't, you can't actually prepare, you shouldn't prepare. You can have thoughts in your mind. You can have thoughts about what Alistair Cook meant to world cricket, to English cricket, and try to do him justice, you know, in that moment. But you cannot say to yourself, this is going to be what I'm going to say, because, you know, he gets the bloody hundred with an overthrow that you nearly miss. So, you know, and then you don't know what the crowd's going to do and you don't know they're going to be that crazy. So you've just got to be prepared to react because come back to it, a radio commentator, not a TV commentator, but a radio commentator is the camera. So, you know, I I get a lot of ill-informed feedback from people who say, you know, you should take a leaf out of Richie Beddoe's book and be more silent. And they go, well, look, mate, you know, if I did that on radio, it would literally cut out yeah. because they'd think that I'd died. So, <laughs> so on, on radio, you have to speak. Now, on TV, absolutely. I mean, I think when he got his 100, they did it brilliantly and they just let the pictures breathe and they just let the crowd and they just, the cameras just went round the crowd showing them and showing Cook yeah. and what have you. yeah. But on radio, you can't do that. You've, you've got to be that camera. You've got to let the enormity of this moment be described. And I do think, I mean, John Arlott, an absolutely brilliant commentator, but he did have a tendency sometimes to to underplay the, the moment, actually. <laughs> do you think of yourself as, as being in form as a commentator? Do you have patches where you think... Yeah, you know, I'm I'm playing well at the moment. And do you have patches where it, you think, oh, this is I'm 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 making a scratchy forty here today? Well, this will sound like false modesty, but it's genuinely true. <laughs> Every time I've come off thinking I've done really well, yeah. When I've listened back to it, I've thought, oh God, that was a bit self-indulgent. Right. And every right. time I've thought I've actually battled through to get that scratchy forty. I've listened back afterwards and thought, you know, I think I got that right. So the, one of the hardest things in cricket commentary, and Simon Mann is brilliant at this, um, is not being self-indulgent because you get an awful lot of opportunity to, you know, um, especially with longers in the game. And you can sometimes lose yourself in private jokes because you know the people you're with so well, you know. I mean, by the yeah. time... I've been on TMS now for, this will be, well, five and a bit years since I did my first ODI. So you get to know the people you broadcast with really well. You have quite an intimate relationship with them um, as as characters. And the danger is, of course, that Brian Johnston's um, little mantra was you want to make it sound like you're listening into a group of friends. Well, that's true. But if the group of friends are just talking a private language, you know, like sort of 15-year-olds, like Patang Yang, Kippabang, then then it's quite excluding, you know. So it's trying to make that balance work so that people listen to it and feel included in your friendly conversation, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose the other, the, the great dividing line between radio and television, apart from the, the the pictures themselves, is the notion of of what a commentator actually is. I suppose in that radio has always held the line between commentator and summariser, and uh, the commentator 
role is entirely separate and entirely different to that of the summarizer. And the summarizer is always an expert, whereas the commentator, you know, is an expert in speaking rather than in cricket. Um, in television, that's completely blurred. What What's your reflection on that, the importance of that relationship to radio? Well, for radio, this again, it sort of comes back to the the business about being able to describe what you're seeing for listeners so that they can access that. Now, um, there aren't very many summarizers actually who can do that because what they tend to do is comment on what they're seeing yeah. rather than describe what they see. So, um, and it's not that they don't have that language. I mean, Ed Smith could do it. Of course, he was mm. ball by baller after being a summariser. Jonathan Agnew started as a summariser and has become an exceptional ball by baller, you know, among the very, very best because of use of language. But it's it's not what a summariser tends to think about. And a radio summariser and a TV summariser and a TV commentator aren't hugely different in a way in their roles because they comment on the stuff that's already been seen. It's just that on the radio, it's been seen through the words of the ball-by-ball -ball commentator. Mm. Um, and I, I, there's a slight difference in that on Test Match Special, especially, it's not true of every broad, cricket broadcast around the world. Some are a little bit more, um, how can I put it? Well, a little bit less frivolous on occasion. Um, our summarisers need to be able to reach out to a particular community in a different way from a TV summariser. But a TV summariser has to be exceptional at adding to what you can already see. So right. it's yeah. not, it's it's quite a skill. I mean, the most skillful, I think, is Tony Cozier. Again, I keep coming back to Tony Cozier. But <laughs> Tony Cozier used to do a ball-by-ball -ball stint on radio and then go in and be a TV commentator. And they're so different as roles, it's unbelievable. Had he gone from summarising on radio to summarising on TV, much easier. But Isha Guhard does it for us, you know, and it's really hard. She does it really well. She To do highlights as a, as a commentator on TV and then come in and remember that you've now got to do all the heavy lifting of a ball-by-ball -ball commentator... You've got to be able to modulate your voice differently. Essentially, you know, the ball-by-ball -ball commentator describes the scene often through uh, vocal cadence changes. So, you know, it's, it's a, bit, a bit like how I always think that Ken Bruce, you know, Ken Bruce on his programme <laughs> could say, so we've got Morag from Renfrewshire and uh, she's a grotesquely unpleasant person, but <laughs> it's marvellous to have her on the programme. I just would hope she'd sod off and die. And listening to that, you wouldn't hear the words, you know, you'd just hear his generosity coming through it, you know. Um, and similarly for a ball-by-ball cricket commentator, you it's not actually getting about getting it right and that it's been hit, you know, two yards to the left of cover and got out the boundary. It's the fact that your voice goes up in such a way that the casual listener or the listener who's wandering around can tell by your vocal inflections, oh, that's runs, or oh, that's a wicket, you know, or oh, that was close, you know, because <laughs> they don't listen to each of our words. They hear, you know, 10% of the words we say, they're just... It's it's all like I say. It's it's a bit like the oral poetry thing. It's like creating this wall of noise from which 
the listener often infers what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the relationship between commentator and summariser, I guess, is one of the most sort of picked over, certainly in the minds of the listeners and in the comments and so on. I mean, obviously, I know you've spoken before and I've asked you before about what it's like to, to sit next to boycott. But equally, you know, they're, they're all very different. Tuffers and Vaughan and all of those guys, Ebony, all brings different knowledge, different sort of skill sets to it. And I was really interested to know that you sort of reflect at, at some length into how you get the best out of them, i.e. It, it, where the power dynamic isn't quite as obvious as we would think, uh, as in, well, Boycott knows a lot about cricket, so he'll talk about that. You don't just leave him to that and you don't leave anyone to that. You kind of are, bring something out of them that, that they might not otherwise think of talking about. Well, you do. And this is where the the longer you know your summariser, the easier that becomes and the, and the better you get at it. I mean, one of the big challenges on Test Match Special is that we have overseas commentators that come in. And frequently, you've met them for the first time. You know, the first time I met Glenn McGrath, he was sat next to me. <laughs> I'd just come on to start a stint. Hello, Glenn. You know, <laughs> uh, the same thing. We, we did the World Cup in 2019. And that's a sort of revolving door of different overseas summarizers. So Kirtley Ambrose, I'd never met Kirtley Ambrose. I, I, yeah. I was in awe of Kirtley Ambrose <laughs> as a child. Yeah. And sure enough, when he sat there, six foot seven inches of him, you're no less in awe of him, but you can't be in awe on the radio because mm. you've got to, as you say, get the best out of him. So what you do is read the person when you don't know them. Uh, you'll have some assumptions about what they'll be really good at talking about. So Kirtley, it's not difficult to think, you know, is the West Indian fast bowling strategy of trying to bump Pakistan out a good one, you know, and, and get him talking. But then you'll you'll find out more about, you know, where he's good. With Glenn, you, you develop a relationship and you go for a drink afterwards and you find out what sort of a person they are. Right. And, and also, you know, they'll tell you stories and you'll start to think, right, he's really good and fluent on these things. You know, great, perfect example is Shane Warne, you know, you, you don't want to talk to Shane Warne about his favourite TV programmes. You do want to talk to Shane Warne about leg spin, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but with... Uh, and you've got... It helps to be sensitive. I and mean, with Jeffrey, I, I told you this example, and I'll, I'll tell it on this here. Um, when I first started with Jeffrey, he was... He, he's a very proud man and he wants every program that he's on to be as good as it can possibly be so he looked at this sort of scrote who turned up and he didn't know me <laughs> well, he, he knew he'd, he'd never played cri- i'd never played cricket because yeah, yeah. he knows everybody who yeah. has you know yeah 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 so he was very suspicious and um and he was quite hard work to be honest with you to start with because you had to earn his trust and his respect um and but also you know everybody would say about jeffrey he can bang on about the same thing. He'll get a bee in his bonnet, you know, about England not having a third man or England bowling, or England's top order not batting properly. And let's face it, they did that for a good few years ever since <laughs> yeah. retired and even yeah. a bit before. <laughs> so you'd get this again and you'd be very conscious that um, the listeners have heard this already. And although he's right, it would be nice to get something else out of him. And so it occurred to me that Geoffrey had played at Yorkshire since, you know, the late 50s, early 60s. He'd have been in that setup, And so he knew 
some greats of the game who, like, you know, Morris Leyland, yeah, Herbert yeah. Sutcliffe, because they were around the York, they weren't in the team, obviously, but they were around the Yorkshire setter. And that they, in turn, had played with the likes of Jack Hobbs, who, in turn, had played, you know, W.G. Grace. Yeah. And so you've got this fantastic resource sat next to you. And so what I used to do, if I thought he was going on too long about <laughs> England's top three not being able yeah. to bat, and be, yeah. you can't bat in the pavilion, and even though he's right, I would say, you know, what would England give for someone like right. Morris Leyland right, or Herbert right. Sutcliffe? And suddenly his <laughs> eyes would light up. And they go, oh, Morris Leyland, Daniel, Morris <laughs> Leyland, what a player he was. And I'd get him to talk about Morris Leyland. And it was riveting, you know. Yeah. And that's the thing that you've got to, in broadcasting, everybody's an egomaniac. We, all of us want the <laughs> listenership to love us and come away going, God, Daniel just said something brilliant. Of course we want that. But it's not, that's not what it's about. It's an ensemble piece in which you're trying to get the best stuff for your listeners. And so, you know, getting Jeffrey to talk about those things, maybe it was only interesting to people like you and me and real cricket badgers and nerds of the past, but we've got seven and a half hour programme. So yeah. if we have 10 minutes on Morris Leyland, I'm happy to do that. I mean, I've had the old producer say, oh, well done, Dad, that's really relatable to the young. And I think, well, actually, sod off, yeah. because it's you know it's time the young knew about Morris Leyland. They know about Hitler. They can. I'm not. I'm not comparing Hitler with Morris Leyland, but you know. It's, it's, but they know the. You know. We, That's how you run into trouble on air. Yeah. It is. Well, it is. Yeah. The Night Watchman podcast is brought to you by Rathbones Investment Management. For individuals, charities and financial advisors. We couldn't do it without them, so please head over to rathbones.com to find out more about what they do. We touched earlier on the notion that we may have found a new way of talking about cricket, that is, if you count the internet as new. Maybe the voice part of it is, podcasting is having a moment now that blogging had perhaps 10 years ago, and the arrival of the live stream has provided a vivid outlet for county cricket, a competition seemingly engaged in a permanent battle to justify its existence, can now point to some head-turning viewing figures, and from being a perk of new technology, each county's live stream has become a vital line of communication. One of the many joys of that has been the way in which each of them are finding their own voice, colloquial sometimes, fitted to their environment. Isabel Westbury is one of those voices at Middlesex. Part of what makes her compelling is the range of experience she brings. And if you're one of those people like me who feels they've underachieved in life, you may want to lower the volume for a second. Along with broadcasting, Isabel is a journalist at The Telegraph. Entirely unconnected, she works as a lawyer where she specialises in financial crime. And all of this has come after a career as a professional cricketer that saw her captain Middlesex get capped internationally by the Netherlands where she first played the game and appear for Western Storm in the Kia Super League. Isabel, I wanted to start with that last facet of your life I mentioned here, your playing career, and ask how much you think that informs your broadcasting. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, I guess, you know, like many, many people, my first introduction to cricket, my first falling in love with it, or even actually my first love-hate relationship with cricket was through playing it. Um, certainly there were times during my my younger years where I hated cricket, so, you know, you hate bowling wide or getting those ducks, those kind of things. And then I think it was that, that, that almost drug-like effect that, that kept me so intrigued by cricket. And I, I got to a stage in my playing career where, you know, I think it's fair to say I had a, 
a natural eye for the ball. I was a reasonable athlete and I was I was good, but I wasn't great. And I must have got yeah. it must have been to my I don't know, my my early 20s, around the time I was going to university, around the time when I really resented the fact that my male peers were getting professional county contracts and I was having to toil as an amateur. I think that's probably around the time when I realised, A, I needed another pursuit or a job or a career, uh, and B, perhaps, as my my father once astutely put it, um, that I might be better off the field than on it when it <laughs> oh, came to cricket. Right. No, we joke about right. it. He's, he yeah. was always very supportive. But yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I, I was I was made captain. I remember being made captain of the England, um, what were we, the, the A team at, at that stage, sort of second England team. And I was quite conscious that I was nowhere near the best player in that team. But I, I had a voice and I like to speak about cricket. I like to challenge, I guess, um, some of the perceived conventions in cricket. And so I felt that that maybe, yeah, my, my voice in cricket was, was perhaps stronger than some of my playing skills. Um, and, and that's where it, it stemmed from, really. Was it? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, what was it you were, you were, what methods were you finding of communicating to teammates that worked, do you think? Oh, I think I was um, pretty annoying, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, it was almost to the degree where, you know, if I couldn't bowl someone out, I'd try and chirp them out. <laughs> right, um, yeah. Honestly, I, I sort of look back at it and I think, God, I would have hated me if I was playing against me. Um, but I, you know, I think, again, being aware of not being that that best player on the pitch, um, I wanted to be included. So I wanted to make sure, I guess, that everybody else who wasn't also the best player was included and and yes I think when I'm in a group of people I find it very hard to stay quiet um and that could be for good or for bad yeah but but certainly you know things like selection things like trying to explain decisions that weren't particularly you know uh, you know if you're going to be dropped or something I was very keen on on doing that as, as clearly as possible um and as soon as possible um, and again, I think a lot of that experience stems from being on the receiving end of it myself. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I didn't sail through. Oh, do Do you think there is a a kind of a player's language in cricket that you fell into? Um, you know, you hear it constantly in interviews. I mean, football is probably the biggest example. Um, you know, where the convention of the way players speak about the game is very much set. Cricket, maybe not as much, but did you, did you find that your, did you, was your voice somehow unique, do you think, or did you find yourself falling into those patterns of communication that players always understand? That's a really interesting question. I, um, I came to cricket uh, relatively late, I guess, because my, my dad is a geologist. We moved abroad uh, or we moved around abroad a lot. So, I was, until the age of 11, almost 12, I was living in Damascus in Syria, um, where there was not any cricket. Um, And it was only then that I moved to the Netherlands um, and and started playing cricket. And I I always knew that I was English and knew of cricket, but I hadn't really, really played it. And so I was only, what, 12 when I started playing cricket. And I was very conscious very early on that I didn't know all these strange fielding positions. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know the vernacular. I didn't know how to describe certain things. And it's it's very isolating. You know, you, you feel 
um, not as as good as a player, as a I don't know, as anything to do with cricket. That you that I I, mem- I remember studying studying those those fielding positions. You know, printing off sheets and being like that. Where square leg is, and the other ones point, and and so I think once I got past that hurdle, it almost became a mark of pride and you became very protective right. of that language. <laughs> yeah, and actually, yeah. I, I've discussed this with journalists recently, is that we can be very snobby around the language of cricket, almost making it inaccessible to um, to newcomers, I guess, because we want to prove that we know more than them. And I think that has was always been prevalent in cricket throughout my playing career, my writing career. And I would say that I've indulged in that as well. You know, I wanted to show that I knew yeah. where that position was. Yeah. And I find it really interesting that this has been brought up recently in relation to the 100, the many, many flaws that it has. I think this conversation is a timely one. Yeah, yeah, I think very much so, because there's a sort of a certain alienation, um, which I guess is what they're trying to overcome. It's, you know, yeah. so it's a very... Uh, colloquial world in, in 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 terms of its language certainly were you aware of any of the i mean you came to the game in a very roundabout way were you mm. a, did you feel the weight of its history when you started to write and talk about it did you feel that that was something you needed to go back and understand yes certain elements certainly because i, I felt it's funny because i think that when you start reading about cricket learning about it you very quickly find out I guess about its origins and the sort of I don't know um, notable tests and whether it be body line in the 30s or the stuff that happened between the wars or even you know, both the ashes in the 80s but what I actually found that I had a, a black hole on I guess was that period that was you wouldn't class as history but I hadn't been involved in so, for example, my knowledge of English cricket in the 90s right. was almost non-existent <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's not something that gets passed down into folklore. Yeah, but equally, right. yeah. um, I hadn't lived it. I hadn't been involved. I mean, recently, for example, when England's men played their first test on um, terrestrial television in the India series, the first time since 2005, um, there were huge sort of nostalgia stories about what cricket used to be like on yeah, free to our television yeah. and the BBC and on Channel 4, I think it was. But I I wasn't in England then. I didn't yeah. come to England until 2008. So this whole era just completely passed me by. So yes, absolutely, I felt compelled to to read about it. But luckily, I, I mean, I think cricket lends itself to writing and, and reading and, and there's some very good literature out there. It does, it does. But, uh, you know, it's very much, certainly in the, you know, you'd say for the first 150 years at least, it, that's a very male history. It's seen mm. through male eyes. Was that something you were aware of and did you feel that that was inclusive or not? Interesting. Um, no, I didn't notice it. And I think that was just right. because of the way in which you're brought up. I mean, we're all... Yeah, cricket, like many other sports, was just a men's sport. I played as the only girl in the boys' team. I didn't know that <laughs> women played in teams until I got invited to play for... I think it was the, the Dutch under-21 team. Really? I'm, pretty, wow. I'm pretty sure they'd sort of found 11, 11 players who'd held a bat before and said, yeah, right... Yeah. You know, I, I just, and again, I think this is what I, f- 
you know is quite fun in this 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 journey of gender progression is that it's not like I'm coming from a higher pedestal or anything I just because I'm because I'm a woman I'm invested in it but also I fall into easy sort of um I guess gender biases just as much as any man would because that's all I've known so no I wasn't aware of it for ages and I think you know things like the terminology that we use for for a person who bats yeah um you know for for a long time i was very stubborn that i was a batsman you know? <laughs> Were you? Be- and that was because yeah. i think go- growing up through playing cricket with the boys i'd always sought to prove that i was as good as the boys so being a batsman was um a mark of respect almost i'm not a batswoman i'm a batsman actually um and throughout my playing career i, I very much stuck to that and interestingly it was it was through the experience of my younger sister who whereas I guess I was quite outspoken and just wanted I was there for the fight almost to prove myself my sister was probably you know she is a better athlete than I am she is better naturally she plays a very high level of hockey now and she played um, cricket with you know she, she played cricket as I did at other cricket club but um, at the age of about 14 or 15 she just hated the teenage boys kind of picking on her or resenting the fact yeah, that she yeah. was a girl. Yeah. And so she stopped playing cricket quite early on and just played hockey because all of her girl mates were playing hockey. And actually, it's funny, we laugh because, you know, if we combined my resolve with her natural ability, um, you know, you might have yeah, had a better, you know, a better <laughs> cricketer. Yeah, but, yeah. But... She was somebody, therefore, that did really suffer from being excluded on the basis of gender. And so through that and through speaking to um, my, my, my journalistic peers or those that work in administration, I think Mel Jones, for example, is a very articulate speaker on the topic yeah. of how important inclusive language is, even if it had no matter to you. So, for example, for me, the idea of a batter, batsman or batsman couldn't, you know, didn't really impact me. It, it may impact others. And, and the argument there is that if it excludes just one other girl than it otherwise would, then it's in our incentive, it's our interest to change it. Yeah. And, and that's where I've fallen. And I think that's now why I try very hard to refer to people that bat, men and women, as batters. Now, don't get me wrong, I slip into my <laughs> usual batsman yeah, very yeah. easily. But I think it's it's important that we all try. Um, and that's all you can ask. No one's perfect. I mean, we all make mistakes. We're all on this path of progress together. Um, and, you know, what what is progress and what is not also changes over the years. Yeah. So yeah. it's, yeah. yeah, it's a really interesting, I hate the word journey, but yeah, <laughs> that's what yeah. it is. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that it was really interesting that you, you, you weren't aware of the kind of the broadcasting history in this country. No. Um, and so when you started broadcasting, I presume you didn't have voices like, I mean, our lot's probably too, too long ago, but, but Benno or uh, Brian Johnson or any, you know, no, any no. of these, you, 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 this didn't have an impact on the way that you approach broadcasting. No, not at all. I mean, I, I would say that I've always been um, wedded to, to radio as a form of broadcasting. But this was probably, first of all, because we didn't get um, yeah. 
the channels, the English terrestrial channels in the Netherlands <laughs> where I was. So we got BBC One and BBC Two, I think. And by that point that I was in the Netherlands, um, it had gone to Channel Four. So the only way... And, and so what also happened then was that the BBC radio broadcasts weren't geo-blocked. So I met my first memories of, I guess, following... Um, English men's internationals was through radio broadcasting. So that 2000s era um, where you did have blowers and aggers um, uh, and... Boycott, I suppose. Boycott yeah. as well. Um, th th those are my, my memories, I guess. Yeah. So um, did you feel when you started, when you first sort of crouched over that microphone and looked out over the field, which is a bit of a daunting moment, um, did you have uh, in your head an idea of the kind of voice you wanted to, to have and to use? Ooh, I don't know. Um, I should add, actually, Christopher Martin Jenkins. That was another one that I remember very <laughs> yeah. well. Um, I think, yes, I, I knew that, I guess, TMS was the standard that I was looking for. And that's what I knew. And I, I, I was also quite aware that I had, um, well, I guess throughout my playing career, I was always um, the posh one, even though <laughs> I don't necessarily think I am. And so there was definitely an idea that, you know, blowers was the one that I wanted to emulate to an oh, extent. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. But, but then, you know, I think it's difficult when you're young and you're going into broadcast casting I think you do kind of look at people and want to try and model yourself but in fact it was it was Henry Blofeld and, and a couple of others who were very quick to say you know you you should certainly like listen and learn from others that's very important but you don't want to be the next Henry Blofeld do you want to be the next Isabel Westbury yeah and so I think very click quickly it, it was definitely this idea that you wanted to be your own voice um, and I think my parents instilled that in me as well. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I did, I, I do remember getting picked on for my accent and this, I, I mean, it's, it's quite funny. I, I don't come from a particularly, I guess, posh background, but I think the fact that we lived abroad and therefore I was kind, I kind of just spoke as my parents did and was around adults uh, to an extent, a lot more in certain, very confined English speaking circles. I mean, it was either that or an American accent. Um, so I think I, and, the, and my parents yeah. were always very much, you know, you should never be ashamed of that. Um, you know, I'm never going to be your chatty Northern lass, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, but I, yeah. I, I will always have the accent that I do and you may as well own it because um, it's 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 the other thing is it's quite exhausting, isn't it? Trying to be someone. Yeah, to not. be someone. Some yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, the, I suppose this this year in particular, with the cancellation of the IPL and everything else that's gone on in the world, county cricket's kind of had this sort of rock and roll moment. I suppose you'd describe it as mm. when uh, you know the the live streams have become incredibly popular online. Um, that Darren Stevens innings the uh, the other day being a yeah. perfect example. You know, um, just these moments that everyone can suddenly share in a completely new way and obviously with Middlesex it happened when Sky decided <laughs> without the IPL they'll, they'll pile down and, and you know and join your broadcast uh, have you been aware of that kind of um that kind of love uh, uprising of love on social media for what what you've been doing 
Yeah, I think that, I mean, the the, the live streams are incredible because it just opens it up to a whole new, um, I guess, population. But but I also remember I've, my, my introduction to radio commentary has been a grounding on the county grind, the radio circuit. And, yeah, and that's one yeah. thing that we're very lucky. And I didn't realise how lucky we are really when I started. The fact that the BBC does cover every ball of the men's county championship and this is a service that's not provided i don't think anywhere else in the world i remember going to australia for a couple of seasons in 2015-16 and certainly they don't have the same radio provision um and that's its own i mean it's it's a much smaller audience i guess it's its own bubble but the local radio following um I've always felt very close to that. Right. Um, and I've always been a third voice, which means that I'm not, uh, I've not been attached to a particular county. So I've had the benefit of going to different grounds, working with different radio commentators, but then also as a result, interacting with a different set of local radio listeners. So again, this, this goes back, I guess, to my, my bias of, of being, I get a, uh, a radio, a cricket radio listener <laughs> yeah. and broadcaster first, but certainly in terms of um, seeing innings that just, you know, you would not have, would have been lost into the ether yeah. um, without yeah. without these, or, you know, just a, a number on a scorecard without these current live streams. And, and I think whether it be little clips on social media, whether it be more radio coverage, whether it be free live streams that you can see the pictures i think any way that cricket can become more accessible is um is for the benefit of us all yeah yeah do you, the the county game has a sort of the men's county game i should say has a very particular mm. pace to it mm. it has a very particular rhythm how easy is that to pick up on as a, as a commentator on it oh i don't know if i've I can't, I can't even claim to be anywhere near having sort of um, to understand it fully because, first of all, every every county, every game has its own pace and rhythm. Um, I think it's 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 really interesting because it's very different to a test match, certainly as a broadcaster, because if you're commentating on a county game, there will be maybe two of you or maximum three of you. So you're on the game almost the whole time. You're on yeah, air almost yeah, the whole yeah, time. Yeah. Whereas when you're in a, a test match or, or, you know, when you're on test match special broadcasting on Five Live to the Nation, you're probably on for, I don't know, one or two 20-minute slots per session, um, if that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think you, you get um, in sync with the ebbs and flows of the, the county game much more quickly. Um, but also it's a test of stamina. You know, I remember yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of the the local broadcasters, especially the ones that have done it for a while, telling me of times, you know, a decade ago where they would only have two. The idea of three people was absurd, so they wouldn't have a break. But yeah. even that was a luxury. Sometimes they'd do the whole broadcast across four days three sessions a day, non-stop, plus all their lunch updates, tea updates, by themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong, I think yeah. being paid to talk about cricket is the most wonderful job in the world. 
but my goodness, that's that's exhausting. Yeah, that's tiring. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a huge. You really, I I think then on the county circuit, you you really understand as well the toil that it is for the players. Um, there's this kind of affinity for it and understanding, empathy almost. Um, but you're much closer, aren't you? Yeah, to, yeah, that's right. To what it means to have to play this long format of the game, the endurance of it. And I love it. Don't I mean, there are times sometimes when I think, oh God, I'm absolutely knackered. Yeah. Um, but but I think I'm very lucky because I do do other things. I have a, a winter career, I guess, which means that almost every, well, no, certainly every cricket season it's like christmas yeah but yeah. but it also almost means that every game um i don't you know it's not cyclical it's it's i'm not tired of it i'm it's a novelty it's a break it's something different so no i i i love i love that part of the game that format of the game yeah yeah are we yet on the other side of the, it was not even a debate, but the 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 uh, conversation about uh, women's voices in the men's game. Do you think we're now completely beyond that, where it's where it's remarked upon, or do you find still on social media and places like that you're getting kickback for merely being you know, simply being a woman's voice on the men's game when you do that part of your job? Yeah, I mean, interesting. I think I'm, again, quite lucky in that I, well, I guess I found out or realised pretty early that my career as the colour voice, the um, um, the summariser, would be relatively short-lived because I hadn't, um, my, my pedigree, my name in cricket wasn't uh, particularly strong. Yeah. Um, I hadn't won a World Cup or, you know, played for England or all that kind of thing. So I, I'm, I'm a ball-by-ball caller, which is, you know, you're the the, um, the professional journalist. And I think for that part of it, I don't think there's there's that, no, people find that much issue with it. The, the one, the people that I think, um, the commentators that have the, the most difficulty is where they are the, um, the summariser, the one providing the expert opinion. And now I would I would split it up and say that around the professional broadcasting media, there's a there is a complete understanding and a willingness to get different voices. Certainly, you know, yes, I think it's beneficial in a test match, a men's test match, to have somebody who may have played at that level, captain at that level. Yeah. But equally, you know, what about the women that have have played have won more ashes for example in an ashes series or even just women who have watched it or have played different forms of the game i think it's all about having different perspectives um and it's not yeah so it's not uh, a sort of campaign to get rid of those ex-men's test captains but it's to say actually well that's just one perspective of having faced 90 mile per hour bowling but actually have you considered what Charlotte Edwards has actually had to contend throughout her career and what she might have to offer. Um, now, I think, as I say, that's that's accepted almost universally, I would say, around the professional broadcasters and um, almost every man that I've talked to in the industry has been extremely supportive of that. Um, but I would then say on the flip side, social media could be a cesspit yeah. um, and, it, yeah. and that, that is not exclusive to sport or to cricket or 
to women in cricket. So, you know, you still have very um, deranged opinions um, on social media. And actually, I, I think it is um, on us as broadcasters, but also actually on the producers and editors to remind ourselves that that is not the voice of a nation. Um, I think that, that the, one of the things as a result of social media is that that voice can be taken too strongly and therefore we're still not seeing that change in the diversity of voices, whether it be for race, gender, geographic, location. Um, you know, we're very London-centric still yeah, in the broadcast yeah. media. You know, I still think that, that that there still needs to be a lot more done to to diversify that. And, and I think part of the problem is this idea that the masses still like having just, you know, Jeffrey Boycott, who's yeah. scored a hundred hundreds um, in men's test cricket and faced that 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 kind of bowling. Um, but actually, you know, that's negligible as, as to if bowling was routinely that pace back in the day. But anyway. <laughs> He'll anyway. tell you it was, yeah. yeah. Of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. Rose-tinted yeah. glasses and all. So, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think that that in the professional world of, of media, I think it's, um, you know, once it's, I think, again, it's part of it is just explaining why it's important to have these different voices. Um, yeah. There's not many arguments against it, really. Well, you might, you know, play this question on the world's smallest violin, but um, when you see uh, the male commentators, especially in the early years, working on the women's game how did you feel that came across and do you feel there's now a more of a harmony where you know uh the, the sky men's lead commentators go, can go off and work on women's cricket without really thinking about it because i still i feel that sense of trepidation if i ever write about the women's game that i actually mm. really don't know very much about it and i'm blundering into it and i kind of very much got the sense that they felt that as well and were desperate not to say the wrong thing i know i know it's a, it's only a, you know in, in the in the wider scheme of things a, a small point but i wondered if you had a reflection on that no i don't think it's a small point at all i think it's a really interesting point and it's it's something that so, so my, my gut feeling is i i love it i i want more of it um my 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 basic view of, of the coverage of sport is that you want the best um commentators writers television broadcasters covering the best forms of the game whether it be men whether it be women whether it be test or whatever you want the best there and so you know I, I want to have um the best broadcasters covering the women's game and I don't care if they're men or, or women right. um yeah and and I think we're seeing that certainly I mean Nasser Hussein going to the 2020 World Cup and covering it as and that's the other thing is covering it as you would a men's game. I think it's so important that we hold the same standards, the women's game, to the same standards as the men's game. You know, if someone plays an awful shot and gets out at an awful time, we've got to say it. Yeah. And I think that's incumbent on men and women. Now, the uh, on the flip side, I do get it. I do get it. If I was a man and I'm coming into a game that is only just recently professional, so the standards are different, you know, that it isn't quite as developed as the men's game so where where can i critique when can i critique? Yeah, to what yeah. extent can i critique these are all questions that you're asking and and therefore i almost feel that it's incumbent on, on you know women like me to 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 say that it's okay um to also be a, 
a critical voice as, as well as an encouraging voice of the players, etc. Because I I think it, it is difficult, you know, you don't want to, to muck up, you know, as a man, for example, if I was a middle class white man, I wouldn't want to use the wrong terminology without knowing because <laughs> yeah. you might get cancelled on social media. Oh, it's definitely, it's, um, it's not an easy task, but I think it's one that we all have to, to do and to, to embrace together. Um, and I think, yes, yeah, so I, I mean, my, my basic view is the best men and the best women uh, should be covering the best men and the best women. I mean, I, from a, a selfish point of view, it, it is trickier because, for example, I mean, I started writing for a broadsheet, The Independent, in very early in my my writing career because I was covering the women's game. Now, certainly, if I had been a man wanting to cover men's internationals, it was the Ashes, in fact, in 2015, <laughs> yeah. I would not be, have been writing for a broadsheet at that stage, but I got my in by virtue of being a woman covering the women's game. So I guess from that perspective, it's a bit like, okay, well, we need to be um, therefore, you know, it's not just about helping the next generation but it's also about sometimes stepping aside and saying well okay are you all right with it then if a man is broadcasting on this woman's test match and it means that you don't get a go yeah you know are you happy yeah. with that yeah. so it's a really interesting one you know from a sort of broader holistic perspective 100 percent i'm in favor but if it then the question comes down to well now your personal job is threatened i mean i guess we all change don't we yeah. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of our chat about talking about cricket. Our thanks go to Daniel and to Isabel, who you can hear on TMS and other parts of the BBC, including the BBC Sounds app. And Isabel, you can also read in the pages of the Daily Telegraph. And thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, then do spread the word. And if you're feeling especially kind, then why not leave us a review on your podcast app? To find out more about The Night Watchman, visit www.thenightwatchman.net. The Night Watchman podcast is written and hosted by John Houghton, produced and edited by James Wallace.